This is the Education Gadfly Show. There's so much doom and gloom in the world. I'm trying to bring some optimism to the tenor, right? Oh, yeah, you're Mr. <laughs> Optimism. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Rob Creamer. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be on. Rob is the Director of Government Relations at Pearson, and before that, has had a long-standing role at Connections Academy, which is one of the big providers of online education in the K-12 space, and we are going to talk all about that today. Also joining us, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. How are you, David? I'm hanging in there, Mike. Beautiful day here in D.C. Nobody's going outside, but it's still beautiful. <laughs> and uh, listeners, I am still in Maine, where I am spending a big chunk of the summer working and also playing. I was off last week. Uh, David, did Checker behave on the podcast? Everyone behaved reasonably well. Okay. Uh, your presence, or your absence, rather, was noted. You know, we talked English language arts testing and just the challenges that are pretty much are cropping up everywhere right now. Yeah, yeah. And of course, nape, nape, nape. Okay, well, today, though, we are so excited to have you with us, Rob. We've been trying to get you on the show for a while because I've been curious about what school districts are going to be doing this year, if they're going to have any chance of doing remote learning better than they did last year, and what role companies like yours might play in all of that. So let's talk about it on Ed Reform Update. All right, Rob. Well, hey, even in just the last few weeks since I was on the show, things have changed dramatically, it seems like. A bunch of big districts, including uh, Montgomery County Public Schools, where my own kids uh, go to school, but lots of other big ones around the country, have suddenly decided that they're going to be all remote learning for the first semester. Uh, You know, I think there's plenty of smaller districts out there that are still hoping to try to do some kind of hybrid model, get kids in a couple days a week. And course, this all varies depending on on how bad the virus is in different places and and other factors too. But what's clear is that remote learning is going to be a a big part of the plan uh, for this coming year. You know, look, either full-time or at least several days a week. Lots of evidence that did not go very well last semester. Not too surprisingly, we've covered that uh, ad nauseum here about the challenges. And I guess the question going forward is whether districts should continue to try to do this on their own, basically sort of invent their own online schools, or if they should get the help of groups like Connections Academy to help them do it. Now, of course, you are biased in this. I know. <laughs> so let's be be clear with our listeners. It's not like we've got an unbiased person. But I want to hear from your perspective, because look, uh, you know, I think in, in my view, Connections has been one of the good apples in the world of online learning over the years. And you've clearly learned a lot about what works and what doesn't in that modality. And so when you think about, hey, how to help school districts do this better, uh, what what advice would you have for them? Again, whether they work with you directly or whether they try to do it on their own. So let's start there. What are your thoughts? You know, I think it probably makes sense to review the bidding a little bit and see what happened last spring and how that informs us going forward because this is something that was never anticipated was going to happen. Online learning, full-time online learning was for one to one and a half percent of the kids at any given time in the country. And all of a sudden with the pandemic, it turns into all of a sudden it's 100% of the kids. And school districts were asked, required to come up with some version of a distance learning program for all of their kids at a moment's notice. It's no surprise that many of them did not do that very well because they simply weren't prepared and you couldn't reasonably expect them to have been prepared. But now it looks like this might happen 
at least starting this fall and maybe regularly in the long term. And all of a sudden, full-time online learning is here to stay at times for 100% of the kids, at times for some portion of the kids, and probably permanently for a higher percentage of the kids than ever before. So the question is, how can districts prepare themselves so that they can seamlessly move online when required? And what tools do they need in order to be able to do that? How does what they currently offer have to be changed in order to be able to make that transition when they're required to make it? I do think companies like ours have a lot we can teach school districts, and we are prepared and ready to do that. And I'd be happy to talk to us about some of the specifics on what they need to do in order to be able to make that transition. Yeah, well, let's talk in some detail, Rob. So, you know, a lot of the complaints was that we weren't actually seeing very much instruction happening uh, this past spring, you know, that in terms of live teacher-led instruction or even recorded lessons necessarily, you know, especially for older kids, they were kind of on their own, you know, teachers would make an assignment over Google Classroom or similar platform and they'd be available if the kids needed help, office hours and stuff, but it certainly didn't feel like a traditional school day. So I'm kind of curious in a Connections Academy school, I mean, does it feel like school? Do kids have a teacher and a group of peers, you know, like 25 or 30 of them? Do they have live classes? Do they have a school day that goes from nine to three? I mean, I guess, you know, way back when, when we used to talk about online learning, the idea was we could get away from a lot of that, from the, the traditional trappings of school. But I think we've seen this past spring, the downside of getting away from it too much. It ends up that just there's not much happening and not a lot of learning happening. How does that look for you guys? So I think it's it's uh, accurate to say that some of those traditional structures of the traditional system classrooms do also happen in an online school, but certainly not all of them. And that is, they do have classmates. They do have live lessons, with what we would call them, or classroom instruction. But it's important to know that a major portion of the curriculum is delivered asynchronously. That is, through a digitized curriculum delivered on a platform that the student goes through independently with the help of a responsible adult at the home, depending on the age of the kid, and with the help of a teacher who's at the ready at a remote location, either by text or phone call or video chat or email. And so for districts to be prepared to do this, they do need to make some changes. That is, it's not realistic to think they can replicate what's in a traditional school classroom and take it online. That is, you're not going to take kids and have them sit through six live classrooms on Zoom during the course of a day and think you're actually going to have anything productive going on. It just is not feasible. And so a major portion of their curriculum, if they're going to be able to transition back and forth to online, needs to be platform-based and the curriculum needs to be digitized and delivered asynchronously. And that simply is a reality. That's interesting because nobody can sit through six hours of Zoom. I mean, is that the notion? Just, just think of when we do it as adults in meeting right. after meeting, which we've been asked to do for the last six months as well. Right, right. Okay, so that's fair. But how do you maintain some structure of the regular school day? I mean, because it really did feel like uh, that didn't happen in a lot of places. And some of the best high-performing charter schools, uh, they did seem to try to create at least more of that structure, maybe you know, the kids are on Zoom for 15 minutes and then they go work independently for 45 and then they come back and they're back with the teacher again. It's not like, you know, they see the teacher once and then they don't see the teacher again for the rest of the day. How have people found ways to do this well? There are structures in a traditional school that you can easily bake into an online environment. Let's think of student clubs, for instance. At Connections Academy, we'll have 
40 to 50 school clubs of various types, a chess club, a knitting club, a politics club. I mean, and the kids join them. They join them virtually. They meet together virtually on Zoom or on the uh, platform, Zoom replicate counseling sessions. There's special education delivered. There are certain things that you can replicate online, but it's, de- it's done in a virtual environment. But that's very important to keep that because you have this social aspects of interacting with peers that you absolutely have to bake into your online experience. And I don't think that districts generally during the pandemic have been set up to do that because generally speaking, they were cobbling together some emergency distance learning program rather than giving their families an integrated online platform with the curriculum and all of these tools built into it. Right. And just thinking a little bit differences between elementary and middle or high, you know, once you get to middle school and the kids do have those six or seven different courses with different teachers, do you try to cover them all in the same day or do you handle the schedule differently? What, what does that look like? Yeah, generally, yes. I mean, the student will be progressing through the curriculum course by course, and to some extent, they're able to choose what they do during the course of any given day. They're not necessarily required to go to every or do something in every single content area every single day, but on a weekly basis, they are certainly required to progress through the curriculum in every content area by the end of the week. And so, to some extent, they're able to self-pace and choose which of the content areas they learn during a given day, but during the course of a week, they are required to have made certain progress. And the teacher is able to easily see that progress on their dashboard. So they mm-hmm. are given flags when a student is falling behind in any content area, and then it's their duty to reach out to the family, reach out to the student and say, hey, look, you haven't done your math today. You ought to current on the math. Or you didn't do well on the assessment for this unit in social studies. So let's see if you need some extra help. So it changes the role of the teacher quite a bit, and it does give up certain things that we are used to having in a traditional classroom, but it also adds certain things that aren't really available in a traditional classroom. Right. David, jump in here. You got any questions? Yeah. Well, let me preface this by saying that I think an important thing to note here is that the consumer in this case is the district, right, as opposed to an individual parent or a student. And I think that matters a great deal. So for folks who are out there who maybe are more skeptical of for-profit education or online providers, that's the first point I would make is just as a general point, under the circumstances, I think this is something that districts need to consider. And then I guess my second point would be, having said that, districts don't always make the best decisions either, right? And so I think my question for Rob would be, what are the questions that sort of district leaders should be asking, the sort of tough questions that will help them distinguish between high quality and low quality providers, making sure they get their money's worth, making sure they know what the product is that they're getting, basically making sure they get a good deal. Yeah. And you're talking about when choosing a vendor, given that they've decided to do this. If they decide to, or they're considering, what should they ask? I think the number one thing, David, is that they should look at the platform and make sure it's robust. It has the curriculum integrated into it. It has the live lesson sessions or whatever the live classroom capabilities are. And it also has integrated assessments for units and for other things that inform the teacher on where the student is. And that's at the ready call of the teacher who's assigned to the student. And so the number one thing is they need to look at that platform and make sure that it's robust and then that the provider has the capacity to 
take their students into the platform. Now, that's something that's untested right now, frankly, because what happens if 50 million public school kids, again, all have to go online and mm-hmm. writers, platforms are not going to be able to handle all of that traffic. Yeah, the, the, the Obama care website. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and right. to be clear, Rob, that, that in your case, you know, if a district uh, contracted with Connections, it would be their teachers and their students, but on your platform. Right. And that's one of the structures that we offer for sure. And and we're when we're talking with districts, we ask them what it is they need and we would tailor something to what they need. And typically it's their teachers. But we have to be honest, their teachers will require some training and not just the platform, but the pedagogy of teaching online because it is significantly different from teaching. In yeah, because it, it seemed like, you know, if this was a case where where districts were telling parents, hey, if you want full time online, we'll provide it. And, you know, five or 10 percent of the parents raise their hands and maybe they just send those parents off to Connections Academy and you do the whole thing. Right. But at, right now, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening, right? All of a sudden, we're talking about everybody doing full-time online or, or significantly uh, to, to that degree. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, the concerns, as David said, about for-profits and contracting out, you know, it's a piece, it's not the whole shebang, right? And it's about adding capacity. It does seem, I mean, is this fair? Like, in my own bias is that this seems to make sense for particularly for small districts. Like I, I can imagine the huge districts that have their big curriculum departments and that have done some kind of technology and online stuff for a while that they might be able to handle doing this reasonably well on their own. But these tiny districts, which of course most districts in America are tiny, it, it's just going to be really hard for them to have the technology and the expertise to uh, to get this to anywhere near the level of quality that, that someone who's been doing it longer like you all have been able to do it. Is, is that fair? I think that's fair, although I would caution the large districts that it took Connections Academy and Pearson 20 plus years to get to where we are with our platform and the robustness and the sophistication of the tools that are integrated into the platform. And I'm not sure it's realistic to think that a school district, no matter how large, can put that together at a moment's notice. Now, given some time, for sure, they can put some tools together and integrate them and integrate their curriculum into a platform. I think that that's something that can be done. But if they're looking at moving quickly, that's going to be a little bit tougher to do something uh, even by this fall, I would think. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Well said, Rob, and we appreciate uh, your time being with us. Again, Rob Creamer from Pearson. Hope you come back on the show sometime soon and maybe let us know how it's going later this fall. As this- Love to, Mike. This uh, experiment with remote learning continues. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Just had a great conversation with Rob Creamer of Connections Academy and Pearson. What do you think, David? I mean, obviously for our listeners, you know, we, we know he's biased in terms of uh, how this should go down. He works for a company that would love to get some contracts from school districts to run their online schools. But I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like the craziest yeah, idea I mean, I, to I, me, I, right? It doesn't. When the counterfactual is in-person learning, frankly, I'm against for-profit remote learning. But when the counterfactual is districts that have never done remote learning before trying to build an online platform and figure out how to do it in a matter of weeks, I think they'd be crazy not to talk to the people who are doing it 15 to 20 years. You know, that's the situation we're in. Yeah. And for all of us to be willing to to be open to the idea that some of these online companies, and there are better ones than, than others, have learned some things over the years about what works and what doesn't, right? And uh you know, yeah. just <laughs> we should 
we should look for good ideas wherever we can find them. And yeah, especially for those tiny districts out there that are never going to have the capacity. You know, you hear the ones about the superintendent is the, also the bus driver. You know, what's the chances that they're going to well, be able to build a great online school overnight? Just doesn't seem that likely. Right. And, and maybe we should also just mention, right, I mean, there are states and districts, right, that are doing this that could potentially make some of these resources available, right, for free uh, on a nonprofit basis. So yeah. also something to consider. Florida Virtual School, right? And I, and I think that they are probably going to do some of that as well. All right. Hey, enough of us. We are eating into your research minute, Amber. What you got for us this week? You've got 15 seconds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I'll, like I'll pay attention to that. All right. Uh, we have a new study every week like we do. It examines how charter sector growth, it's a charter study in North Carolina, I don't know if you guys saw this one yet, influences the sorting patterns of students and teachers as it relates to teacher turnover, teacher characteristics, and effectiveness. I guess what I want to say before I dive in is keep in mind that North Carolina is sort of a unicorn in the charter school world. Charters there tend to serve more white students, and they're also allowed to locate anywhere in the state versus being restricted to low-income areas. So useful context. But they use the state's legislative removal of the charter school cap. We probably remember this. In 2011, the North Carolina legislature removed the charter school cap in 2011. It had previously uh, only allowed 100 charter schools, but it took that away, and it also lowered the requirement proportion of teachers who had to be licensed at charters from 75% to 50%. And so this study kind of uses that change as a natural experiment to assess the impact of charter school growth. They're looking at both the impacts of when the first charter enters the system as well as when the share of students grows across time in the sector. Uh, They use administrative data from 2006 to 2016, an 11-year panel So they've got six years prior to the cap removal, and they've got five years after the cap removal. They're looking at urban and suburban areas only, and uh, mostly K-8 schools. So they calculate the count of charters within a 10-mile radius of each traditional school in each year, as well as the student populations of each charter within that radius. They use a couple different approaches, uh, but their preferred one is an instrumental variable difference and differences approach. Because we know that charters do not locate randomly, uh, traditional schools are going to vary in their likelihood of exposure to charter competition. And of course, they're going to vary in their existing student and teacher population. So they try to account for all this. It's kind of complicated, but the gist is they use the number of charter applications submitted within a geographic radius of each TPS, traditional school, interacted with the post-cap removal period as an instrument for the current number of charter schools. So at the basic level, the number of applications in an area approximates the local endogenous demand for charter school services. The deal with sort of, you know, that these schools do not locate randomly. We can talk about that more later if you want, but right now I'm going to dig into the findings. Number one, the number of charters increased by 60% in the five years since the cap was removed, a lot. Uh, And the number serving racially homogenous student populations also continued to grow. That's both majority white schools and majority non-white schools. Number two, local charter entry reduced the inflow of new teachers at nearby traditional schools, leading to a more experienced and credentialed teaching workforce on average. (laughs) Each additional charter nearby reduced the proportion of new teachers at TPS, traditional schools, by 1.5 percentage points. Just stay with me. At the sample average of four nearby charter schools, the average traditional school has a 17% increase in the proportion of teachers who have master's degrees and a 12% increase in the proportion of non-white teachers at a school. So their workforce got more diverse and they had higher credentials. 
No effects overall on value added. Number three, however, when they separate charters by their student populations, they find that the entries of charters serving predominantly white students leads to reductions in average teacher experience, effectiveness, and credentials at nearby traditional schools, mm. particularly TPS serving mostly black and Hispanic students, although the differences are modest. Number four, on the student side of things, charters increase TPS enrollments which is interesting. They say that this may occur through induced residential demand or spillover enrollments when the charters come to town. The TPS populations also tend to become whiter, which is such a weird phrase, and more economically disadvantaged, in line with some prior research that shows economically disadvantaged students are less likely to transfer. That's pretty much the big, biggest findings. I mean, I personally found that the writers seemed a little more sympathetic to uh, TPS than charter schools. You know, their big takeaway was saying, you know, that if you've got a white charter school, it's going to make recruitment and retention of qualified teachers at TPS even rougher. But I tend to think the results were more nuanced uh, than that, given what I just said. So there you have it. Huh. Mike, you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting. This, uh, I guess I understand that some of these new charters come in and so they take a lot of the new teachers. And so the district doesn't have as many new teachers, but I don't quit, but then what is the district doing? They have to be hiring somebody. I don't know. It just makes me scratch my head, you know, that they end up with more experienced teachers. I'm like, well, are they not retiring? Well, I mean, I I don't know whether the new teachers were in the process of getting their um, certification because once they, the new law said, you know, you only have to have, what was it? What did I say? 50% of teachers with a teaching credential in charter schools. Maybe the those teachers who hadn't gotten their credentials yet left to go to the charter schools, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then filled in, yep. you know, maybe it was a... Well, hang on though, right? So, yeah, if they're hiring new teachers, then, I mean, are the teachers moving from the charter sector to the traditional public school? No, from the traditional public school to the charter school sector. That could be an implication because now the charter schools, if you've got teachers who haven't got their credential yet, and the charter schools don't have to have as many credentialed teachers... I don't know. That was just a right. But, but then are they moving back to the district after they've started at the charter? No data on that mobility, those mobility patterns like that. Okay. Because I mean, one potential interpretation, right, is that it's like a training ground sort right. of, right? Yep. Uh, alternatively, I mean, you said that enrollment increased in district yep. schools. I did. Okay. I was going to say that if you just stop hiring people, eventually people will get older, I'm told. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it could be spillovers. Just you know, maybe new charters couldn't handle all of it, or you know. I hear what you're saying, Amber. I do have to say personally, the idea of a white charter where you know where parents can select out, and then you know, experience reduces. Uh, you know, teacher experience declines in traditional public schools is not. Let me just put it this way: it's not why I support the charter movement. You're right that that's mostly a North Carolina thing, or at least that's where the evidence of it is clearest. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm I'm not a huge fan of that. Uh, it, maybe in the long run, it all washes out. Um, but I do think that's a problematic dynamic. No, it, it is. It is un- it's unusual. No, it it is. I mean, I think. I think it's fair to say that North Carolina is the only place where those kinds of schools are growing. I mean, you can find some of those other schools in some of the early charter states like California and Colorado and Minnesota, but that's not at all where the charter growth has been. 
I'm also curious just to see how these labor markets change over time. You know, if, if you look at the places where there's a pretty stable charter sector, you know, especially in the big cities, my understanding is, you know, whereas once upon a time they hired a lot of young teachers right out of college and uncertified teachers, you know, it's now their experience rates often look quite similar to the districts around them, you know, and they're just as likely to use the districts as the training ground, right? I mean, certainly those high performing charter networks that are, that get tons of applicants, the KIPs and the Achievement First, you know, they have learned to, uh, you know, if they can avoid teachers who are in their first year of teaching, but instead to try to cherry pick those teachers that are doing a good job at the district schools and, and encourage them to come on over to the charter side. So this is another unusual, you know, I understand for the study, it's interesting to see what happens in these brand new schools as the sector expands, uh, but that's not super representative of what we see elsewhere. So interesting, but perhaps not so representative. Unlike the studies that we've done in North Carolina, which we think are quite representative of the national. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, right. it's just, a, uh, let me just say one more thing. I mean, yeah, all right. Mike's going to push back. But, and what is interesting, right, is that to me, the shoe can be on the other foot, right? One way or the other, the charters can play, in theory, the role that the district schools are playing in other places, right? And the district schools can play so, I mean, it's sort of like a role reversal, right? So one way or another, uh, I, I don't know, you have to consider the overall effects and maybe it shouldn't, I guess my point is maybe it shouldn't matter so much which sector is playing the role. Does that make yeah, sense? I, mean, I was on a charter board in, in DC and it was definitely a two-way street. You know, teachers were turning over between both sectors, right? And, and, and within the charter sector with the mom and pops and the higher achieving charters. And so, yeah, I think Mike's right that it, it really depends on, you know, where the particular ge geographic area and city or area we're talking about, those dynamics. But and, um, and on the whole, we want there to be competition, right? I mean, we want schools to have the incentive to get great results and to therefore seek out talent. And then we think teachers will get treated better as a result. Also, they'll get paid better. They'll get treated better. The work, the working conditions will be better. So, so that's not all bad. And of course, in the old days, pre-charter schools, for the most part, you know, it was the higher poverty schools that lost out on this. You know, they, they just had no way. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the working conditions to compete with the suburbs. They just lose lose a lot of their best teachers uh, to those other schools. Hey, if we now have some high poverty schools, charter and district that are able to uh, better recruit great teachers, let's celebrate it. Amen. All right. We're going to have to leave it there because uh, we're out of time. And I'm just feeling like, hey, th there's so much doom and gloom in the world. I'm trying to bring some optimism to the tenor, right? Oh, yeah. You're Mr. <laughs> optimism. All right. Hey, thank you, Amber, as always. That is all the time we've got. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.